Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now, here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good morning. Happy New Year. I'm so glad you're here in worship with us, whether you're in the, this room or whether you're joining us from your living room. Thank you for your presence here today, for worshiping with the family of Englewood. Let me invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures, and open with me to the book of Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians 2, we're going to pick up in verse 12 and go through around verse 18 this morning as we continue or return to this series that we began working on before the holidays uh, on a road through Philippi. Philippi, a major city uh, in the Apostle Paul's day in biblical times. And there was a major roadway that went through it. And uh, as travelers passed through there, God had placed in my heart, that's exactly what the gospel is supposed to do with us. It's supposed to pass through us as it makes its way to the rest of the world. Hence the title of the series and happened to be, we have a message today called a worthy workout for 2021. Do you know why that is so clever? Because it's New Year's, all right? So uh, anyway, I want to I share with you this idea that Paul shares with us that he lays out for you and I as it relates to or as you and I are probably thinking some about uh, maybe the past where things were, maybe the present where things are, and the future where we desire for things to be. New Year's is a great time for people that make decisions or resolutions. Um, I know it's that season because my Facebook feed is filled up with exercise equipment and new eating plans and new planners and schedule makers and all of these other things so that people can make adjustments to where their life is now and maybe bring them in line with the ideal or where they desire for them to be. So maybe you've thought about some of those things. Perhaps you've, you've looked at it and you said, hey, this year I want to make some changes relationally. I want, to, I want to build on some relationships that I have. Maybe you made decisions to make adjustments physically and you said, hey, this year is going to be the year that I run a triathlon or something. Has anybody made that goal? I, I didn't find anybody in the first service and None here either. Good. We're unanimous. Okay. So anyway, but uh, maybe you had a desire to, to do something and make adjustments in that area. Maybe it's adjustments vocationally. I, this is the year that I'm going to move forward in my employment or I'm going to change employment or maybe it's education or, or, or whatever it is. But here's a question. If we would have a desire to make changes in all of those areas, does it not make sense to consider should we make changes in our spiritual health? as well. In other words, in the midst of all of this reflection that we do at this time of year as we think about new beginnings, would we look at our spiritual lives and say, man, I'm exactly where I want to be. I'm exactly, I'm not, I couldn't grow anymore. I mean, my prayer life's exactly what it ought to be. My knowledge of scripture, exactly where it ought to be. My holiness, exactly where it ought to be. I'm perfect. I've got it. If that's you, I'd like to meet you after the service. All right. I'd, I'd really love to talk with you. But here's what, here's what is true. A lot of times our choices to advance spiritually get pushed down and back and behind some of these other changes or resolutions that we make along the way. And yet the Apostle Paul tells us in this letter that really should be our highest of priorities. 
Now in Philippians 2, where we left off last time we were together, we saw that Christ's love toward the world uh, was not some idealism or idealistic pursuit or some philosophical pursuit only. It's not that Jesus got all the feels thinking about uh, about these things and, and said, hey, you know what, I just love the world and that's the end of that. No, he actually came. He actually did something on the desires that were in his heart. And uh, he came to be present in the midst of our world to perfect us, to uh, bring for us salvation. And we understand from that that as Jesus put feet to his faith, Paul tells us here in the church at Philippi, and by extension to you and I here at Englewood, that we should do likewise. It's not enough for you and I to simply think rightly. But we must, uh, we must act diligently. We can't just feel fully. We must pursue that in our lives. In other words, there's something for us to do with what we know about God. In fact, our spiritual development or our growth or our advancement or even our usefulness to God at times necessarily requires effort on our part in order to bring it to realization. Now, Listen, I've been a Baptist longer than I've been a Christian. And can I say to you, that's probably as much of a disconnect for a lot of folks as anything. They say, well, what in the world? How can you say that I've got to do something? Well, don't, listen, don't miss the force for the trees, but don't check out yet. Because there's always an action component to this plan that God has for us that he gives us by way of vision or picture or uh, by teaching from Scripture. There's always a doing part. Stated differently, all genuine faith has an active or operative component. Notice what James says on this in James 1, verses 21 and 22. James says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. He draws a distinction and says there sometimes we think on things or we'll make a plan for things but we don't actually act on them and it's actually unfulfilling. In fact he would go on and say to you and I today he would say, he would tie the doing to experiencing the blessing of God. James 1 verse 25 says but one who looks intently at the perfect law the law of liberty and abides by it not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. In other words, it's not enough to know God is good. There has to be a walking according to that. There's not enough to know that God provides. There must be a walking according to God's provision if we're to experience the very blessing of God. So here's the point. If you and I would find physical health or relational fulfillment or vocational advancement or educational achievement a worthy goal how much more profitable would we find to give our attention to spiritual growth if we pursued spiritual growth how much of an impact on the kingdom might we make how might a city be changed as we pursued our own growth spiritually? How might the nations be engaged and blessed by the gospel if we pursued our own, if we pursued God's plan and purpose for our lives? That's the point I think Paul's trying to get to in Philippians 2, and I want us to get to it now. Uh, Philippians 2, we're going to begin in verse 12. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of the Word of God. 
Philippians 2, beginning in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Pause right there. Father, even in these moments, I pray you'd help us to understand what it is to work out our salvation, what it is to live out what you've placed in us. And then Lord, I pray that uh, as we give you freedom to speak and freedom to to move, God, I pray we'd be willing to obey and we would do so desiring to experience the fulfillment of your promise. So have your will and way in this place, we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for standing, you be seated. Hey, if you're following along on the app, there's a, an outline there and I wanna show you three keys to achieving and becoming in 2021. Three keys, three essential elements that you and I have to have if we're going to achieve or become in this coming year. If we're going to grow in the most essential ways this year, there are three keys that Paul gives us here for us to look at. Now, if you're saying, I don't have the app or I don't have an outline, that's okay. If you'll just text the word notes to the number that's on your screen, we'll send you a link to it. You can have the outline. It'll be right there with you directly on your device. Let me show you these three keys. First of all, I want you to see the key. First key he talks to us about is he says, you and I have a, the key is a reverent effort. We are to exert a reverent effort. Both of those words are important, a reverent effort. Look at verse 12 with me. Paul says, so then my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. When we find this in verse 12, we find our first imperative of the text, the first command, the first instruction where we're given a directive that says you are to go and do this. And here it is, that command or imperative is for us to work out our, and it implies our own, work out your own salvation. Now Paul says as he writes this to them, this isn't a new or a foreign concept to them. It's not an elusive plan. He points back to their track record. He says, just as you've always obeyed, literally, just as you've always followed my instructions in my presence and now much more in my absence. In other words, in the same way that you've always done what I've instructed you to do, do this also, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The idea communicates with it an effort that the people he writes to are to exert an energy that they're to place toward this in and of themselves, a striving, a contest that they're to chase after and pursue. Something that they're to work for is implied here in the text. Now, that seems like a paradox. Like I said, I've been a Baptist a long time. On one hand, we as Baptists would say, Chris, 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 the salvation we talk about is one where God does all the work. We don't do anything. 
And they might even cite to me Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of man, lest any man would boast. They They would say, I didn't have to do anything. That's true. But there's another concept of that that Paul tells us about here that says we're to work out our own salvation. We're to work out. Ephesians 2 and verse 10, the very next verse after verse 9 in my chapter, says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk or or live according to them. We would carry out these works that God has for us. So it seems like a paradox. Is salvation something God does or is it something we do? Paul says, yes. Now bear in mind and keep in mind, he did not say work toward your salvation or work for your salvation or work on your salvation. He said work out your salvation. Work out what God has already worked in you and I. Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God who's at work. Now that's the same root word that we found in the instruction to us to work out. It says that God is already at work in you and I, both to will and to work. In other words, God works in us both the desire and the deed. He works in us both the want and to work. Now that's not just in a few cases, but it's in every single case. Well, how does God create a a want to in people. I mean, does, does God do a, does he do a Jedi mind track? Is he like baby Yoda and he can just change your mind and just cause things to happen? Does God just do that? I mean, I suppose he could just implant a desire in there, but there's sometimes where that happens in what we might think are more natural ways. Let me give you an example. When, uh, when I was in, in my early twenties, so yes, a, a day ago, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I first, for the first time, was being discipled as a Christ follower. And I became a Christian as a, as a boy at nine years old, but had not ever had anybody intentionally help me grow to become in the faith. And you say, was well, that their fault or yours? Yes. But I had not actually grown in the faith. I was, I was very satisfied with a pastor's pre-digested sermons that he spoon-fed to me. If he said, well, it says to do this, I said, oh, that's good, I'll just do that. And if he said, no, you have to work and figure out this, I'd say, I'll just wait for it the next week. It'll come, you'll, you'll chew it up and give it to me in a little bit, but I don't want to have to work for this thing. And I'm in my early 20s, and I go to a church, and the pastor there, who you know, by the way, the pastor there taught me to read the Bible for myself. And he was like, hey, listen, there's some stuff in here you need to know. And he would challenge me with things. One of the areas he challenged me with, I found out one of the strongholds in my life. Can I be transparent with y'all? Will that hurt your feelings? Is anybody confused that I'm not perfect? Is that? Okay, good, good. So, one of the things I wrestled with in my life was control, being able to be in control of stuff. And then I would hear these things called sermons about, and I struggled with these things on sermons on money, tithing. And I thought, what is that all about? That's weird. And the reason I thought it was weird, and the reason I pushed back so much, I wasn't a tither, I was a tipper. So here's what I did. I made my decision of how, how to give or contribute to the church based on what took place in the sermon. So I would give the most if the sermon was kept in very... Tight boundaries, y'all following me? If it was like this, I'd be like, oh, that's a $40 day. 
And, uh, and hey, listen, if it didn't step on my toes, in other words, if I agreed with it pretty good, kind of like if you go for service somewhere and you get what you ordered and it's hot and it's served just the way you like it before all your neighbors got their food, well, then, I, man, I was, might go $50 that day. But if the preacher went long or if it come out a little cold or if it wasn't what I ordered, well, we might, get, we might just get a little piece of it or we might just get a penny in the plate. God had to do a work in my heart. Now, how did he do that work? Well, here's how he did it. Consistently, I was being taught that God had an instruction for financial stewardship. Over and over and over again, I was hearing the instruction from the word. Then I was hearing about how God promised to bless people that would obey him. And I'm like, oh, that can't be. And he said, no, 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 look at this and look at this and look at this. And it wasn't that every day it was taking place, but God was doing something in my heart to where I wanted some of that. And, and I didn't quite understand this, but I understood God wanted me to do this. And I wanted to do what God wanted me to do. And then I would hear testimonies of how God actually did what he said he was going to do. And I would read them and I'd hear them. And then suddenly there's a desire in my heart to want to try something that Previously, I was against God is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God created a desire in me. Now, I, I use that example about financial stewardship because it was a big stronghold for me. But the same thing could happen in all my areas of where God keeps doing work in my life. In the area of parenting, the area of uh, being a good husband, in the area of uh, where I would spend and focus my attention and, uh, and, and, and intentions, all of those things, God took and created a desire within me. But he didn't just stop at desire. God stirred a desire within me to yield to, to his, in, his instructions but he didn't just stop there. So it wasn't only that he gave me a desire, but he also divinely empowered the pursuit of that desire. In other words, he gave me the ability to carry, because wouldn't it be terrible of God if all he did was gave us a want to, but didn't give us the ability to carry it out? That's why I want to give you a truism today. I want to tell you that God enables us to do everything he puts in our hearts to do. God enables us. He makes it possible for you and I to do everything. Now catch this. Here's the qualifier. He puts in our hearts to do. So if God makes it, if he puts a desire in our heart, God always, always enables us to fulfill that desire. Otherwise he would frustrate us. And God's, God does not exist to frustrate you and I. But he, listen, did you catch the qualifier? Because sometimes we'll want to put things in God's heart for us to do. We'll say things like, Lord, I just saw a commercial. Man, I want a new bass boat. Oh, Lord, I want a new bass boat. And the preacher said, God enables us to do everything that, that he puts in our hearts to do. Lord, give me a bass boat. That's not how that works. That's you trying to convince God. That's not God speaking to your heart. In order for us to tap into God always enables us to do everything he puts in our hearts to do. We've got to find out what has God put in our hearts to do. What is it God desires for us? What is the desire God's placed in our hearts that reflect him? When we figure out what those things are, then listen, then we're not running around with some kind of weird name it, claim it kind of idea. Like we're trying to convince God of our, our great plan, but we're a people 
waiting on God's great plan and then pursuing it with passion and zeal. And then notice the, the last phrase there. He, he's at work within us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For his good pleasure. In other words, God's not sitting back and working into us a salvation apathetically or begrudgingly, but he does so joyfully. Joyfully. Well, Chris, I don't know. I'm struggling with this whole idea that God would want something from me. God wants me to work for something. I struggle processing that. Is my salvation, is it me or is it him? The desire, is that him or is that me? Where is it? Which is it? I think the answer is yes. I saw this illustrated uh, uh, this past week. We were together and I got to be with my grandson. I wish I'd brought a picture so y'all could be blessed. I got to spend some time with my grandson and, and uh, he's like 10 months now almost. And he, he's kind of feeding himself now. In other words, he's got to a place to where the independence that just comes genetically or spiritually kind of taken over in fact if he's not the one shoveling food he's a big boy if he's not the one putting food in it's probably not going in you you do you'd be hard-pressed to get it in because he's reaching to grab it whatever in other words he wants to feed himself but here's what I noticed in order for him to feed himself his mom had to go buy ingredients and prepare food and cut it up and it sometimes put it on the spoon for him but once she did he could feed himself who fed him him or her Yes. See, here's what's true. Without him, the food would probably lay on the tray. Without her, there'd be nothing on the tray to lay there. God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working out of us that which he's placed in us and enables us to experience. And friends, listen, God is preparing a banquet of blessing and grace for you and me. But you can't sit back and say, okay, God, give it to me in an IV or give it to me by osmosis or just, just, just unleash it on me. There's an effort. You've got to pick up the spoon and put it in your mouth. Notice the second key. I want you to see not just a reverent effort, but a right attitude. Now, remember, in Philippians, attitude is a very important deal. In fact, in Philippians, the two primary themes we've talked about are the gospel, that's the work, and joy. The rejoicing, that's the attitude. And those two pieces go together. In fact, Paul told us, we saw very early on, that we find greatest joy when we're actually doing the work. He said, he says, uh, uh, as you're pursuing the gospel, that brings such meaning to your life that that brings to you an abundance, an overwhelming uh, amount of joy. Now look at verse 14. I'm, yeah, verse 14. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do, that's the work, all things without grumbling. That's the attitude. And that word grumbling, by the way, it translates to this. It's low volume. It's a low volume complaint or behind the scenes talking. That's what it literally means. He says, do all this without talking over here, I can't believe this around here. Can you believe that? Can you believe what God wants me to do? It's just incredible. It's just crazy that God wants me. Oh, hey, God. I love you. I'm so spiritual. I sing loud. I can't believe you actually think I'd want to do this. Paul says, 
work out, do all things without grumbling and complaining. Why? Because it's not so much that we do as it is also how we do and why we do. Stated differently, Paul tells us don't resist the Father's work, but recognize that His work is purposeful and good for you and for me. Don't resist the Father's work. See, here's what I've learned about walking with Jesus. And y'all have to tell me if you think this is true, maybe. But not everything He calls me to do or places in my heart, I really want to do up front. In fact, some of it seems really hard. I don't even want to even try it some. But now listen, I've been in that position for a long time in my life. I remember as a kid, my mom wanted me to eat green peas. Why? I mean, when you got Cocoa Puffs, why would you eat green peas? That doesn't make a lick of sense. If it's up to me, I'd ask God for Cocoa Puffs and Fruity Pebbles. But she'd make me eat green peas or sometimes okra. I mean, who under heaven wants to eat a vegetable with a five o'clock shadow? Why in the world would you do that to yourself? Now, after these years, I've come to a place of thinking, you know, that five o'clock shadow is not so bad if you'll dip it in some buttermilk or something and put some breading on there and drop it in the grease. It's, it's pretty fine stuff. But I didn't like it up front. Sometimes God puts stuff in front of us that we don't like up front, but it's for our good. It's better for us than Cocoa Puffs, even if we only have an appetite for Cocoa Puffs up front. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? That's why Paul said, not only do what God's placed in your heart, let it work itself out, work it out of yourself, but do it in such a way that you do it without grumbling and complaining, trusting that God's doing a good thing, even if you don't fully understand it and comprehend it at the moment. Notice the language here also implies a choice that we have to make. He says, in essence, choose to do this without grumbling and complaining. It's another imperative for you and I. Now look at verse 15. So that, here's the purpose, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. This introduces the purpose clause to us. He says, here's why it's important not only to work out your salvation with fear and trembling and to do it without grumbling and complaining, but you do it for this purpose right here so that you will prove, you will demonstrate, you will give evidence that you are children of God, blameless, innocent, and above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, against the backdrop of the world. He says, you appear to them as lights in the world. Now listen, the imagery is unmistakable. When you sit down and you look at this imagery that he's laid out there, it's not the first time we see this contrast between light and dark. And our working out of our salvation and attitude with which we do it creates that same contrast of light against darkness. Let me show you where a couple of places where these appear. So if you take a note, jot down John chapter 9 and verse 5. Jesus said, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He said, now here's the thing. Jesus gives us this picture that the world's dark and when he steps in, it's light. And the beautiful thing is light always overcomes darkness. Darkness never overcomes light. Now he goes on and says not everybody likes the light because sometimes people prefer darkness more than light. In fact, you know that to be true sometimes. If you're sitting in a dark room, it jolts you if somebody turns the light on abruptly, doesn't it? 
hey, listen, you don't know. Try this, sir. Here's what I want you to do. In the morning at 4 a.m., I want you to sneak out of bed, go to the light switch, flip it on in a hurry and say, good morning. Then you can call my office. I'm doing marriage counseling in 15-minute increments on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday because it's not going to go well for you because in that moment, there's a desire for darkness and here you are bringing the light in. The contrast is important even if not everybody loves it at the moment. There are still some who do. Now, Jesus is the light of the world, but he also said, so are you and I. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world a city set on a hill and it cannot be hidden i am the light of the world you are the light of the world in other words jesus knew that he would place us in a spot where that we would be in such contrast to the culture the world around us to its values to its actions to its everything we'd be in such contrast that it would show a stark distinction between god's ways and everybody else's ways so what we do and how we do is important. He says, you've got to work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out what God's worked in. Do it without grumbling and complaining because you are lights in the world. And this necessity of a distinction between a Christian and the world is essential. Without it, there's nothing that brings conviction of sin or encouragement to saints as they look on. John and Mary, church members, fish sticker on the back of their car. They say, I love Jesus. Oh, I'm a good church member. I love Jesus. As, hey, listen, they've identified themselves as a Christ follower. They've lit the candle. But here's the problem. If their candle doesn't look any different than the rest of the world, they're actually testifying, even though I love Jesus and Jesus has a plan and purpose for my life and your life and our lives, I've chosen something else as more reliable for me to put my faith in. And I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to say I'm with Jesus, but I'm going to live as though this is a better plan than Jesus. That's the battle you and I face every single day. We know God has a plan and purpose. God said, here's for you. Here's what you're to do. Here's how you're to live. Here's what you're to experience. Here's the hope that you have. And then we choose, do I really believe that or do I believe this can get me to where I want to be faster? If John and Mary pursue the things of God, well then they're a bright light against the canvas and they say, God is better. But if they live indistinct, then they're testifying at that point, not God is better, but they're saying that Jesus' ways are no more a blessing than the guidance of culture, the security of government, or the example of influential voices. Even if we say Jesus is amazing and has a great plan, by ignoring it, our actions testify there's nothing special about him at all. We say in our actions something so loudly they can't hear what crosses through our lips. Hey, what about your life? What about your habits or choices? What do they testify as to the value of Jesus? Here's a question to think about. Do, do your children know the values of the word, the value of the word of God and the necessity of prayer 
and the essential habit of Christian community, even if you've never pointed it out to them? You say, well, how, what are you talking about? How would they know that? Can they look at your life and see that God's word is valuable because of how you attribute, how you live according to the value of God's word? I used to, uh, I used to, this is going to sound maybe to some of you terrible, but take it as this now. Uh, when we were raising our sons, I wanted them to value the word of God because I grew up without that kind of discipleship kind of early on in some of the formative years. So I wanted them to value the word of God. So how do you do that? Here's what you can't do. You can't just say y'all should value the word of God. When does a teenager listen to you say that? That's crazy. So here's what I tried to do. I tried to let my sons catch me reading the word of God. You say, oh, you're just putting on a show for them then. Your motives are impure. I, I didn't stop there, friends. I wanted my sons, listen, when they first started driving, I wanted them to learn that it's important to check the oil in your car because sometimes you might have a car that doesn't burn any oil. Sometimes you'll burn two quarts between a tank. And I wanted them to learn to check it. But here's what you can't tell a teenage boy. You ought to check the oil in your car because they're like, I don't even know where that little dipstick thingy is. And uh, they're never going to check that. Or you'll go, they'll go, they'll say, well, that oil light came on. What, what does that mean? That means I hope you pulled over. That's what I, that means. Don't drive anymore is what that means. And uh, so I wanted them to learn this. So here's what I would do. I'd go fill up with gas and I would pop the hood and check the oil myself. Because what you do communicates so loudly, sometimes they can't understand what you hear. Do your children know the Word of God? Do they see that prayer is important, essential, valuable, necessary in your life? Or do they hear you say, man, prayer is important. We should pray. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, bless the food. Amen. All right. We've done it. Or do they see a deep desire, a necessity, a desperation to be in communication with the Father? See, we teach that way. I wanted them to catch it. Do you understand? Hey, what do people catch when they look at your life? Coworkers, your children, your spouse, what do they catch? Now, Paul's laid this out heavy. He said, God's trying to work out of you what God's worked in you. You should work out what God's worked in with fear and trembling, without grumbling and complaining. You ought to do it because you're a light in the world, because God's trying to make a statement in the world around you. You ought to do all of that. But he didn't stop there. Notice not only the keys of a reverent effort and a right attitude, but he gives us a third one here. He tells us we should have a responsible expectation. A responsible expectation. Look at verse 16 with me. Verse 16 says, now he's just told them, you ought to do this appearing as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So here's where Paul's going. He's saying our ability to do and our desire to do are fueled by a hope that we have in Christ. He says we are to hold fast. That word means to cling to or to continue to believe in or to aim at. We're to pursue after the word of life. We're to cling to so that in the day of Christ. That's a very clear picture of the day of reckoning or a day of judgment. Paul says, in that day when we stand before Christ, when, when, when Christ looks at my life and my ministry and my works, I want to be able to boast about you and about your faith. I want, I want to be able to say to Jesus, I had a little something to do with that. Look at them go. So that my boasting, my glory 
would not be in vain, he says. He says, I want to have a reason to glory or boast. Because of my exerted effort and my hard work with you, I want to be able to prove that it was not needless or empty. Unless we think Paul's just being philosophical or preaching, notice what he says in verse 17. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. Paul says, this is how I've lived and how I continue to live for you. Even if my life is being poured out, even if I've come to the end of my race, even if my faith and my pursuit of it, my ministry to you has brought me to a place of even the end of my life, even if that's the place where we've come to, he says, I rejoice and I share my joy with you. Why? It's as though he's looking at something that's beyond where he is, that's worthwhile pursuing, that he says, in that day, in the day of Christ, I'll find that my work's not been in vain because your faith would testify otherwise. It's here that Paul connects his gospel work to the formation and growth of their faith. My service, he says, for your faith. So here's the connection. Where it's God who saves, he causes desire through the gospel work of others. While God works in us to will and to work, he uses us, his church, his gospel agents as part of that work. So, man, catch that. You remember my story, my confession about, you know, control and how that worked its way out, finances and stuff? Do you know that I didn't just wake up after a dream one day and suddenly knew about financial stewardship and God's promises and but I didn't that's not how it happened he worked through somebody's labor diligently serving and ministering and teaching and sharing testimony and through those processes created a desire which went there which I believe ultimately will result in fruit which will result in a boast in that day in the day of Jesus where that person's able to sit and say I invested in that one for you, Jesus. You didn't waste your calling on my life. I invested in that one for you, Jesus. That's what we ask of every, <laughs> I'm preaching now. That's what we ask of every connect group leader. Invest your life helping folks understand and apply the word of God. You're not just teaching a Bible lesson. We could get, we could just YouTube that. Invest your life in someone so that they get it, so that the desire's there, so that one day you too can stand before Jesus and say, say, Lord, you entrusted to me, you called me, you put a desire in my heart as I worked it out. I, I, I was able to, have, to influence others and God to your glory. Their lives are better. The fruit's bearing out over there. And Jesus could go, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you understand? Am I by myself in the room or is there anybody else in here with me? Y'all are a quiet bunch of mice. I'm just saying. This is why the second service goes so much longer. The first service has figured out if we just talk back to you, you'll get us out the door. The second service hadn't figured that out yet. That's why you're here till 1.30. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Look at verse 18. I want you to catch... This one last thing, because Paul says, in that day when the weight of my work is measured, if you continue, then I'll have reason for boasting that my sacrifice bore fruit in your faith and I'll rejoice and share my rejoicing with you fully. And then he says, that should be an example to you and I. Verse 18, you too, 
I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Here's what Paul said. He's like, in the same way that God is fulfilling me and has given me this ministry and has allowed me to serve you and has allowed this fruit to be born in your life, keep working it out with all fear and trembling. Keep working it out without grumbling and complaining. Keep working it out in service so that even at the end of your life, you'll rejoice and share your joy with me. You do likewise. See, that's what the church exists for. This isn't some story about some ancient writer 2,000 years ago. It's about God's plan and purpose for how he wants the world to know him, how he wants light to overwhelm darkness. So how would you summarize this and put it all together? Well, as God has and is working in you, Paul says, we ought to work out our own salvation in sanctification or holiness. In other words, I don't know about you, but one of the things is I've reflected on my life and I'm looking back on it and I'm going, gosh, Lord, how do I want this thing to, to what I really want this next year to look like? One of the things I'm asking God to is make me even more aware of the areas of my life that need to change and look more like you. Show me how to be more holy. Help me to not function from flesh, but to function from this desire that you put in my life. Help me to reflect you. Work out of me that which you're working in me. I'm asking God for that. Now listen, if that throws you, if y'all, y'all aren't gonna sit there and go, gosh, the preacher's asking for God to help me be holy? Why are we listening to him? Let me answer that for you. Because you need it too. So you need it too. God, work holiness in me. Help me to be so distinct in the world that I hurt the eyes of those who like the darkness. So that they're under conviction. And so that those who are other candles, so that other lights would be encouraged. It's okay to shine brightly for Jesus. To grow in our sanctification. Not just sanctification, but in service. To say, hey, Maybe God wants to find out if, if Paul said that my service to you would not be in vain, that my race would not have been run without, without purpose, where would God have you to serve or to be a part of or to grow in service? This thought hit me as I was driving to church this morning uh, with the radio up far too loud, by the way. And uh, I'm driving, I'm coming in there and I'm reminded of a statement from years ago where I was reminded that the church does not have a mission, but the very mission of God has a church. In other words, God's got something he's rolling out into the world, and he's called you and I to be part of that rolling out. Now, some may sit and say, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a good member of Englewood. I come. Amen, period. That's the end of the story. Well, now, how does that fulfill a mission? I know that's good for you, but how does that advance a mission? Here's what I know, God created us to serve one another and others. God's created us to make a difference in people's lives. God's created us to bear his name before a city and around the world to go to places when we find out about people groups that have yet to hear his name, to be the ones that say, even so, Lord, send me to be that group of people. He's called us to that. It's not enough to sit and soak. He's called us to serve. Maybe he's impressed on you today, not only something about sanctification or service, but maybe 
sacrifice. I look back on last year and I go, what a blessing to just experience the things I've got to experience. And then to look around at so many others that have yet to experience hardly anything. And to go, God, what could, what could I give that would make me look more like you? What could you teach me through that act of sacrificing? So, the first thing is that we ought to, God, work out your salvation and sanctification and service and sacrifice. And then God would say to us, to, Paul would say to us, if we were summarizing this, to do it with a God-informed attitude. The God who's at work in you is also working in others and he's going to use you. And to keep an eye on the clock. Because nothing's over until the clock hits zero. And for those of you who've avoided football comments up to this point, bless you. For those of you who've already tiptoed into the trepidation of that, bless you. But here's what I'm watching the game. I'm watching the semifinals this week and uh, watching a better team beat Clemson. I said that out loud. Isn't that crazy? So I'm watching a better team beat Clemson. But now here's here's the deal. We got to halftime. Here's what I was thinking. It ain't over because it's just halftime. It's not over at the end of the third quarter. It's not over till the clock hits zero, zero. Because anything can happen until the clock hits zero, zero. And once the clock hits zero, zero, there's nothing you can do that goes back and changes anything that took place in the last 60 minutes of play. So you may look out there at the world and the city we live in and the culture that we're in or your circumstances and you think, gosh, it's so dark. Yeah, but it's not zero, zero. So don't you count yourself and don't you count God and don't you count his church and don't you count our city out. It hadn't got to zero, zero yet. There's still time, there's still daylight, there's still a worthy fight. And God's called us to fight it together. Because one day the clock will hit zero, zero and there's nothing anyone can do at that point that changes anything back here. It's important that we strive all the way to the clock. We keep an eye on the clock. That's why Paul said, so that in the day of Christ, when the clock strikes zero, zero, I may have a boast. See, at the end of the day, when the clock strikes zero, zero, the only thing that matters is victory. It only matters who put more points. It only matters that you're his. That you're his. Yeah, but Chris, I'm going to, I'm hoping to live my life in such a way that, man, I'm going to have the biggest house in town. It won't matter once the clock hits zero, zero. I want to have the most comfortable job ever. Won't matter. I want my kids to have the greatest of educations and have all kinds of initials behind their name. Honest to goodness, I want the same thing for my children and none of that will matter at the end of the day. Here's what will matter. Are you with the victor or are you against him when the clock hits zero, zero? What I do with this today? Some of you, I pray that, that as God has spoken to your heart, you'll make a commitment to him. I want to step forward in this area of sanctification or service or sacrifice. Some of you, <laughs> it may be that uh, God may be stirring something completely else. For some of you, you may be sitting there going, goodness, Chris, I, I've never understood what was going on uh, like that before. And I just, with all that I've done, I'd love to know that God would have a place for me in some of that. And I got good news for you. He does have a place for you. 
Because you can never be so far gone. You can never sin so much that God would stop desiring to both desire and to do in you. So therefore, work out your salvation. If you'd come to him, he'd receive you. He'd receive you. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. This is Pastor Chris, and I pray that the message you've just heard has been a blessing to you directly from the heart of God. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at englewoodbaptist.com next, or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. Today's message was an encouragement to you. Let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us to reach a wider audience with a life-changing message of hope in Jesus Christ. We hope you'll join us again next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.